it's a very interesting bridge into the unknown and into the other. But then it also tells you more about yourself and who you are. Hello and welcome to the Waterstones podcast. I'm Will Rycroft and in this episode we're going to be delving into translation, sampling the wide breadth of cultural input now available to show why variety is the spice of life. As the man behind Walter presents, Walter Iozzolino has been acting as a cultural curator for TV viewers over the last few years. With Walter Presents now branching into literature in partnership with Pushkin Press, I took the chance to speak to him in London whilst the British translator of the French novel that launches the series, Sam Taylor, spoke to us from his home in Texas. Walter and Sam, welcome to both of you. I should start by sort of pointing out that, of course, uh, Walter, you are an Italian in London and Sam, you are an Englishman in Texas. Is that right? That's right. Yes. So maybe we should we should talk a little bit about this already. We're, we're sort of in a moment of translation, a uh, cultural sort of sharing. Sam, how does an Englishman find himself translating French novels whilst in Texas? How did that oh, happen? Oh, that's a really, really long story. Um, okay, I, I, I found myself translating French novels because I was a journalist in England for eight years at The Observer, and I'd always wanted to write novels. So in at the age of 30, I quit my job, sold my house, moved to southern France, and began writing novels in France. I didn't actually speak any French when I moved there. Um, my wife at the time was French. Um, and I basically just learned French through osmosis, through through being there. And so wrote novels for about nine years, and then came to a point where I could no longer make a living just from writing novels, and realized I had practically no other skills and other than being a journalist, which wasn't going to work in the middle of the countryside in France. So I learned <laughs> what I could actually do and thought, hey, I, I speak French. Maybe I could just translate novels. So I asked my agent about it and ended up doing reader reports for publishers. And the first one I did was HHHH by Laurent Binet, which I ended mm. translating. That was my first translation. So, so that's how I, I translated yeah. French novels. The story about America is a whole other story, and I think probably we don't have time to go into it now. We'll, we'll save that for another episode of the podcast. Um, I mean, that's extraordinary that the first novel that you translated was was uh, Ash, 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 to give it its sort of French title, um, because I remember reading that back in the day when I was a, a book blogger, and um, that book was a huge, huge success. So that must have been quite... I mean, how, how was that to, for the first book that you translated to become so well-received and well-known? I mean, just it was also just extraordinary. Lucky that the first book I read for a publisher happened to be the best book I'd read in about ten years, um, and I think partly I, I, tried, I read it for Faber, who did not end up buying it, and I think maybe they just mistrusted my report because my report was like completely a, a rave. It was a wonderful <laughs> book. I think you know it was the first report I'd written for them, and they thought I thought maybe they think they thought I I was just exaggerating or something. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it was an extraordinary piece of luck. Um, the way it was received, honestly, I had no experience at the time in terms of how well I expected it to do or how how much I expected to get, how much praise I expected to get as a translator. I didn't really expect anything. So it was all a surprise, but at the same time, I had nothing to compare it to. I mean, looking back on it, it was, yeah, that was probably one of the three most praised novels that I've translated. So... Was very lucky, very very um, good timing all round. Really. 
we will come back to to sort of the act of translation. Walter, if, let's come to you because you're, as I mentioned earlier, an Italian man living in London, and you may be known to many people as the face of Walter Presents on TV, where you were bringing European TV series to a British audience. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how that started um, and and where it's now taking us into literature? Sure. Well, it, it, as you correctly say, as an Italian, the interesting thing about being an Italian uh, um, viewer of television, which is where I grew up, I've, I've been in London for 20 years now, but I, I grew up and, and, and completed my university studies in Italy before coming here to then ironically study um, at film school because I wanted to be uh, a director and, uh, and a writer as well. Uh, so... Um, when you, when you when you watch TV in Italy, as you may know, Italian Italians and indeed quite a few other European countries dub television, which in many ways it's a terrible thing because if you as a lover now obviously of original language programming which we launch with subtitles and water presents, I've I've you know I've become a crazy lover of, of everything that's original and that embraces a nuance of original language, particularly when an actor is speaking it. However, the advantage of of the dubbing process is that it means that as a member of the audience, uh, sort of regular Italian 9 p.m. primetime television, you are exposed to a much broader palette of programming than you would have been in the UK a few years ago, in the sense that Italians don't really differentiate between Italian programming and German or French or American programming because it all sounds Italian to them. And so when Mm -hmm. I grew up, I was watching literally a French crime thriller on a Tuesday night, an Italian mafia story on a Wednesday, an American Desperate Housewives type show on Thursday. And and I really enjoyed the uh, width and breadth and scope of that palette. So when I moved to London to do film school uh, about 20 years ago now, I was quite stunned by the narrowness of the, the programming choices in terms of drama over here, in the sense that there was quite a clear differentiation between mainstream drama on UK television channels was either British or American, understandably. And there's nothing wrong with that. Both uh, the Brits and the Americans produce stunning drama. But I was missing those other voices. I, I, I couldn't find the lovely French cop show or the dark Scandinavian noir. And, 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 and original programming and, in, in fact, original filmmaking sat on the other side of that sort of Curzon curve, where it was a very niche, quite snobbish opera club type uh, pastime. And it didn't, mm. hadn't hit the mainstream yet. And so I, I forever dreamt about the possibility of launching something where we would embrace programming across Europe and the rest of the world and bring, I mean, I, I was aware of wonderful, wonderful box sets and series that would be made all over the world. And I couldn't bear that they, they didn't arrive here. And so th- this all came to be because obviously BBC4 moved their first steps into the arena by launching, in fact, the very first show. People talk about Scandinois, people talk about um, The Killing and the Bridge, but in truth, the very first show that broke into the UK was a French show called Engranage, which we translate, translated Spiral. And it's a brilliant, brilliant cop show. And I mm. knew it, I knew of it, and uh, I watched it here on BBC4. And I remember thinking, if this finds a large enough audience, then I could possibly one day launch a channel that's entirely dedicated to international drama. And it did. That, that was a cult hit for about half a million to a million viewers across the seasons. And, and that's what persuaded me that it was time to do it and to launch something that would be broader than just crime or Nordic, but it would embrace all sorts of genres from all over the world. And so that, that's been now going for quite a few years. We launched on Channel 4 in 2016 with Deutschland 83, which has been a huge success and won an international Emmy. So it's been a really lovely and interesting, complex and quite refined show. And, and since then, the, 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 the leap into literature was almost obvious in many ways. 
things because mm. we, we became uh, the curator as a company, really, uh, with myself uh, uh, on the front line. Uh, it was all about curating great stories and hidden gems that have never reached our shores in the UK. Now, I myself have been a translator. I, my, my academic background is in literature. My, I have a PhD in Anglo-American literature and I focus on Henry James. And as a result of that, I got quite a bit of translating work where I was... Um, basically spending my youth translating Henry James from English into Italian um, and really enjoyed that. And, and, and I used that to save money to come to the UK and study. <laughs> uh, but but uh, so I, 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 again, in, in a similar way to Telly, I was very aware that there was lots of beautiful stuff out there that never quite reached the UK uh, bookshops because it wasn't because because a lot of books are written mainly so it's not that there aren't good stories out there but i think that the tone of voice of a french novel or an italian novel or a scandinavian novel is really different and and mm. the timing felt right with the advent of ferrante and you know it it's become uh, audiences are in fact much more curious and open than they ever were i think and uh, i suppose one of the question is is why because we in the uk can be very english centric uh, particularly, I think when English people travel abroad, they get so used to going to countries where English is spoken, and their attempt to speak a foreign language is usually just to shout English a little bit louder um, when they're ordering a beer or something like that. And we we're quite English centric in terms of our culture as well, because we have a rich culture and, and we don't f- sometimes feel that we need input. But why do you feel so passionately that that input from other cultures is important and nourishing and enriching? Well, I, I would say two things. First of all, I, I agree with you about the Anglo-centric uh, element of what you were discussing. However, I also think that British audiences are uh, implicitly open and incredibly curious. Maybe it's the island thing, but they have always been incredibly curious and excited about travel and about foreign culture. I mean, you know, it, it's a sort of... Uh, the Englishman abroad in a kind of um, room with a view, Ian Forster, passage to India kind of way, I think to me is a very iconic example of, of storytelling that constantly wants to reach outside and 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 so it, the world has changed quite a bit i think if you'd asked me this question 10 years ago my answer would have been different but i think that mm. there's a real craving and a desire for international storytelling there certainly is in television and i'm sure the same will be for literature if you look at what's happened with the international booker prize over the past few years i remember this is an interesting one for example i when we launched walter presents i was invited to a couple of book festivals and uh, and i went to cheltenham and i thought uh, uh i thought that no one would turn up and you always have that fear of like you know you're gonna have a half or uh, either half empty or empty room syndrome type thing i was thinking who on earth is going to come to uh, in, in such a lovely prestigious book type environment to listen to me mm. about international telly and actually it was entirely sold out the room was full and i and i walked in and i thought there's such a clear connection between people who love great box sets on on television and who read novels because in, in many ways the box set is kind of a, a, a version of the new novel if, if you think about it box sets are dickensian household worlds type uh serialized uh, novels in their own way with, with yeah. each episode being a chapter but i think that british audiences are more curious than ever before and it doesn't mean that there's no love or respect for their own culture at all but i think that but if you think about you know brits in france and in italy and indeed all around europe there's a real desire from food to lifestyle i think it's a it, it's a very interesting bridge into the unknown and into the other but then it also tells you more about yourself and who you are i think it's an, a very it's an incredibly important thing i think if culture stops searching for the other and trying to understand itself through the other, then culture would implode and would end.
A very good point. I, I sort of mentioned earlier, Sam, that I, I used to be a book blogger. And, and as part of that, I was fascinated about reading more translated fiction. Uh, and in fact, there used to be a hashtag in the early days of Twitter called Translation Thursday, where sort of this little merry band of bloggers would share books that were written by uh, authors outside of the UK. And uh, I, I immersed myself in lots of those books. And uh, through that, as I mentioned earlier, read some of your translations. And I was fascinated to hear you saying about how you had actually come to the French language quite late in life. Um, rather than being a sort of a French scholar, it was something that you had done more organically. And when I used to write reviews of books, and bloggers do this still, I think they, they, they'll talk rather vaguely about the translation. And they'll say, oh, it's a really great translation. And I always sort of thought, I don't really know whether this is a good translation or not, because I don't read the original language. I'm not comparing texts, but I can I can get a sense from reading this book that it flows or that it has clarity, that it doesn't jar. But I just wondered what sort of characteristics you're looking for in your translations when you work on a book. And I wonder whether any of those things are influenced by the fact that you did come to it a bit later in life and not from a sort of more scholarly point of view, but something slightly more organic. Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the main, the, the biggest compliment I can get as a translator is when people say, I forgot I was reading a translation. Well, it just yeah. feels like it was written in the original language. Um, I, I, I used to read a lot of translated literature, not because it was translated literature, just because those were the authors and the stories that I was attracted to. And there was definitely, in my mind, there was always like a, a the books fell either side of a line either I read them and was completely entranced and, and swept away by them and didn't think about the, the foreignness of the language in the translation process, or I felt I was reading with like a glass pane between me and the book, and sometimes that pane was kind of quite dirty, or, you know, it was like it was, there was definitely something in the way, and I, I could feel things wrong with the text where the translator had, had got the tone wrong or got the rhythm wrong or the fluidity wasn't there. And this was before I became a translator. I, I, so my ideal translator was always just to keep that glass pane so clean that it felt like there wasn't a glass pane there at all, basically. To, to, to mm. take away the, the idea that there's something between you and the text. What was the other part of your question? Yeah, yeah, just sort of about how you had come to the French language, I suppose, slightly more organically because of living there and, and soaking it up rather than studying it at university, for example, and, and coming at translation from that point of view. And I just wondered whether that had had any influence on how you translate and perhaps even on the success of your translations. Because I, I think when reading your translations, there is a sort of a, a paired back quality to the language and a clarity, which makes means that the books absolutely, as you say, that, that glass is completely clear and the books are hitting you exactly where they need to hit you. Um, and I wonder whether that's been helped by your immersion in French language and culture through living there. Um, I mean, I, it's a, it's a lovely thought. I mean, I learned most of my French through playing football and playing tennis and having conversations before and after the game. So I'm not sure, you know, that the, the, my death, <laughs> as good as you're implying it is. I think, I think the main reason I'm a good translator is that I was a writer. I am a writer. And I think the most important quality for any translator is to write well in their target language, not, not the source language. The source language is the language you're translating from. The target language is the right language you're writing into. And I think ability to write well in the target language is the most important quality in a translator. Um, yeah. I, mean, I, I don't speak Italian. I learned a bit of Italian on Duolingo earlier this year because I was planning to travel to Italy this summer. 
Um, I feel like I could translate an Italian novel now. It would just take me four times as long as it does to translate a French novel. Mm-hmm. I don't <laughs> language fluently to translate it well. I think it just helps you do it more quickly and do it more easily. So yeah, my 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 starting point as a translator is is being a writer and and a reader. You know, it's like I I definitely don't have all of the translation theory. I've never learned any of that stuff, and I I feel like instinctively it just gets in the way that you're you're making it something more complicated than it has to be. I'm intrigued by the sort of the process of translation in that. So for example, when you get a text, do you have to sort of sit there and read through the whole book? at least once so that you have a clear view of the whole thing and then go back through it and start actually translating it. And I asked this as somebody who used to be an audiobook narrator and you have to obviously read through the whole book first in order to mark up the various voices and to make sure that there are no potholes that are going to trip you up later on in the book. I did do this once actually where we discovered about two thirds of the way through the book that a character was actually from New Zealand and not from where I thought. <laughs> and then of course you have to re-record the whole thing because it's just in the wrong voice. And I just wonder whether you therefore have to do quite a lot of groundwork before you actually get to start translating the book. The short answer is no. I mean obviously the difference between recording an audio book and translating a book is that I can revise it as I go along. I don't I don't I'm not like making a recording which is stuck there. Um, so yeah, no, I don't. I mean, I, I've I've done it both ways. I've, I've quite a maybe maybe of the fifty books I've translated, I've maybe read fifteen of them before I started translating. And usually, that was because I was paid by a publisher to to read them for a a report. Um, occasionally, it was mm. just because I loved the author and started reading because I wanted to know what the book was like. Um, I don't. I honestly don't think it makes that much difference either way. I mean, I, it, it perhaps it gives you a slight head start in terms of not having to make as many revisions, but I, I don't think it makes any difference to the overall quality of the translation. And let's have a little look here now. Uh, Walter presents in his literature form. Uh, Walter, let's talk about this first book that the series is launching with. Could you tell us more about Henry Pick? I, I absolutely love it. I fell in love with it. And, and, and as Sam was saying about his first translation, it was a sort of happy coincidence for me as well, because we had been discussing with Pushkin uh, launching a collection of uh, um, international novels together and uh, with me sort of scouting them. And the principle always was that we go a different way. Our entry point would be different. Instead of having the usual recommendations by agents or publishers or whatever, that we would actually uh, source these books through a completely different network, as in me talking to writers, producers, colleagues all around Europe that make, that watch, that write the programs that, that we launch, and therefore that understand the taste palette, uh, mine and that of our audience, and ask them. So it, it, it was quite an interesting entry point, because the moment you start asking a great director or a great writer of, I don't know, Norwegian fiction, what do you read over there? What's a bit like this title or that title on telly? Then, then they come up with really different uh, different uh, ranges, actually, which are quite interesting. But this one came about really by chance. It's almost like a sort of Fekino story, if I'm honest, in that I was in Paris for a work meeting um, with the, the main channel there, Tefan, and uh, we were coming back in the afternoon and I, uh, I deliberately wanted to stay a few more hours to go and see an exhibition at the Grand Palais on my own. Um, and so I, my colleagues went back to the Eurostar and I, I felt blissfully free and alone. It was almost like having a little affair with your own self. You know what I mean? I was <laughs> in Paris. I could go and watch Kupka at the Grand Palais and just, you know, another great passion of mine. It's uh, visual arts. And uh, 
walk all the way back to the station. So I remember feeling quite elated. So I was in a kind of Amelie way. I felt quite inspired by my afternoon. And uh, I left the exhibition delighted, filled with books, because I, I always buy these catalogues. And, um, and I started walking and I, and I said to myself, I tell you what, I'm going to walk for 45 minutes and get to Garden Noir just walking and just enjoy feeling Parisian. And of course, as soon as I formulated the thought, the worst thunderstorm in history happened. And <laughs> literally, it was one of those where there's a brick wall of water just falling off the sky. Literally, the, the cars disappeared. There were no cabs anywhere. People vanished off the streets. And I was there on my own, walking with no umbrella. And I thought, like, oh, what the hell? I'm going to get soaked. There's no, I mean, let's just not fight this. And so I just literally, I walked and walked. And at some point, literally, my shoes were filled with water, oozing out. And I thought, I have to stop for a second. I went into the book, a bookshop, which was open there, I thought, just to seek refuge. And, uh, and there I, I saw a book, not this one, but another book by Fentino. It's called Vers la Beauté which uh, captivated me because I like the cover, I like the color and texture of, of the Gallimard uh, editions, and it had a nice Modigliani um, uh, print outside. So I thought, what's this about? And I was intrigued. So I picked this up to read it on the Eurostar on the way back. And I really liked the book. I thought it was a little bit uh, uh, um, too arch in a way, and it was a little bit too uh, dark in parts. So it sort of, it titillated me, but it upset me on some level emotionally. But I really liked his writing. I thought that it really had merit. So I started looking for what else uh, David had done. And, and the next one I came across was The Mystery of Henry Pick. And that I fell in love with instantly. It's one of those books that I opened page one, and from the first three, four chapters, I was completely entranced and I couldn't put it down. And to me, what was special about it was its unique Frenchness. It literally was, a mystery, but it was a mystery about literature and writing, and it was about the love of books, and it was also about hidden gems. And so I just fell in love with it, and we uh, we decided that this was going to be the one that started the collection, which actually is interesting because it really is about what we want to do with the brand anyway, which is discovered hidden gems. This is not the latest Finkino's book; it was launched two or three years ago, uh, but it didn't matter. It was just about finding a great story that had charm and, and a bit of mystery at its heart and bringing it back to the UK. As you say, it is a fantastic book for book lovers because it is all about books and literature. And as you say, that there's a, a mystery at the heart of it, which we won't give away, obviously, in this conversation. But the premise is beautiful because the premise is about a librarian who loves books so much that dedicates a part of his library to the discarded manuscripts that have never been picked up by a publisher. Sort of beautiful broken orphans of literature, right? And I really like the idea that it's a small church for lovers of literature where, where, where broken-hearted authors go and file their manuscript, which will never see the light of day. And so that's already a very romantic concept. And the idea that then into this comes a sexy, cute, clever uh, Parisian book editor who picks one up and turns it into a giant bestseller is incredibly fun. It'll be heartening for any author who's uh, found their book on the rejection pile. <laughs> the idea that it might be, first of all, cherished and then, of course, turned into a massive bestseller. Right. We can all but dream, right? Um, Sam, if you could tell us you know, a little bit about the translation process for this book, working with that source text, how, how did you find it uh, sort of you know, translating it for an English audience? There was nothing particularly unusual about translating um, The Mystery of Henri Pique. I, the, 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 I came to this book from a slightly different place because I'd read and translated um, his previous novel, Charlotte, which yeah. is completely different. I mean, it's uh, it's a it's written in verse for a start. It's about it's based on a true story of a um, a German Jewish artist who produced amazing work in the Second World War before 
being gassed in a concentration camp. So it's like, it's deeply tragic, very moving. And I was asked to read um, Mystery of Henri Pick by the same publisher who published Charlotte. And I was just baffled by it, to be honest. It was so different. It was so, it, it, I didn't even, I almost didn't believe it was the same author. Um, and <laughs> when I first read it, I didn't really like it for that reason. And, and then Pushkin asked me to translate it and I went back to it. And in the process of translating it, read it in a different light. You know, it came across very differently to me and much more enjoyably, much more just in terms of the way it was intended to be, I think. I wasn't comparing mm. to, the, to, the, to the book before them. So um, it was very easy to translate. Um, I don't remember how long it took me, probably only a few weeks, I would think. And it was enjoyable just because it's so light and... and um, uh, it's just like a sort of jeu d'esprit, you know. It's like it's it's almost like a game, um, and the, the mystery is is very lighthearted. There's a lot of uh, um, references to the French publishing industry and to the the media in France, which is which is very literature um, centric. You know, France is an extremely literary country, and that comes across in the book. Where can you can you tell us, Walter, about where? The Walter Presents series might be going uh, after the mystery of Henri Pic. Well, in fact, I already know where it's going. It's going the next one. It's going to Milan and uh, and Liguria because we have coming up next a, an Italian crime thriller, um, uh, which I found as an Italian obviously was much easier, uh, uh, and uh, I was guided by some really lovely friends working in publishing, and and I was asking them to uh, introduce to me uh, pieces that I deliberately in um, sort of discarding Henry Pitt kind of way, to be honest, uh, and that really had merit and that deserved a second look. And uh, it's it's a beautiful sort of Gomorrah-style uh, crime thriller, but set in Milan, and it defies some of the classic stereotypes of uh, mafia sort of Italian crime. So I think it's 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 going to be quite an interesting one. And I'm avidly reading now, confining my flat <laughs> uh, for the next one. The first two are already... Uh, done so Henry Pick is launching very soon and and in the summer we're going to be launching the Italian piece but the idea would be to continue sourcing books from uh, interesting and unusual uh, recommendations so to speak and, and will it will you be keeping it uh, focused on Europe or will you be traveling no no, no I'm traveling all around the world in, in the same way that we do we Walter presents it's uh, and it's, it's that but it's also to keep the texture and variety to go back to what Sam and yourself were saying earlier and it's absolutely correct and I've read now all of them uh, uh, Fenkino's books. He's one of those authors, and and to me, that's again a symbol of what the collection aims to be. I think it authors are. This is true of directors, of painters, of all kind of. Um, uh, artists really in a way you're either a brand artist that has a language a tone a feel and reiterates it a number of times throughout its career in a way that sort of Henry James and well, most writers are or and directors or you're one of those kind of strange one-offs quite compelling which I find more compelling and more interesting directors like Francois Ozon or Ang Lee where every film is so entirely different. And you're going to get romantic costume drama and you're going to get crime thriller, something gritty, something sexy, something dark. And you never know. And you're right, it can be uneven, uh, the production in that way. But in, in the follower of a writer of that type, there's an excitement because you implicitly wonder what they're going to handle next. 
and, and mm. versatility. And, and I think the collection should be very much like that. that every book, you know, we're starting with a slightly romantic uh, literary mystery. Then we go for a gritty, quite sexy Italian thriller, which sets uh, set between the uh, mid 80s and the late 90s. So again, it's a sort of the what we call the lead ears in Italy of the fight against terrorism um, um, from the Italian magistrate. So it's a very uh, dark, but quite sexy part of Italian story in a kind of Deutschland 83 kind of way. And, and then we're going to be moving to anything. I mean, I'm reading a very interesting, actually, I can't reveal it, but a Japanese book, for example, right now. So it, mm. stretch our wings as wide as we possibly can. Variety is the spice of life, as they say. <laughs> so that's what we know. And we've all got, and I think, you know, as we're stuck in our homes currently during lockdown, the one way that you can travel, of course, is through literature and allow yourself to sort of completely immerse yourself in another culture through the pages of a book. Correct. Um, Sam, would you be able to, uh, uh, rather than sort of telling us what you're working on now, because that might be under wraps, but I wonder when you look back on the the collection of books that you have translated, is there one that sort of sits above the rest as one where you felt like you absolutely nailed it as a translator and felt that you sort of elevated that book even further? There are there are two books that I'm particularly proud of. Um, one of them is The Heart by Marlies de Carangal, which was originally called... Um, Reparer le vivant, which was translated. There are actually two translations of this book. One, the British one is called Mend the Living, and it's by a Canadian translator. The American one is called The Heart, and it's by me. And if you read them side by side, they're very, very different. Um, and the, the Heart won um, a couple of prizes, as, as I think did the did Mend the Living. Um, but yeah, I'm very, the heart, the, Miley's prose is, is extremely complex full of allusions references it's almost shakespearean in a way and mm. um that was a very difficult book to translate and but also kind of thrilling you know it was like i was i was exhausted at the end of every day doing it and but 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 proud of what i'd done so yeah i'm, I'm very proud of that book and also a book called in paris with you by clementine Beauvais, um which is completely different it's, a, it's actually a ya romance in verse and the reason I enjoyed that so much and the reason I'm proud of it is that it's the most collaborative book I've done. It, it really, a lot of that book is mine rather than just a translation. Clementine gave me a lot of freedom in terms of how I translated to make sure that the, 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 the English had the same kind of um, rhymes, internal rhymes and rhythm, and, and they all worked in English rather than being a translation of the French. And so it's more like a version mm. of translation. And we did it together to a large extent so it was it was a lot of fun and um yeah it, was, I, it had much more freedom than any of the trans than any of the other translations i've done and that's pretty interesting that as you say that if you're translating prose uh, there's obviously you, you don't need the input of the other author so much but translating verse and maintaining that rhyming structure means that you're going to have to do as much writing as they have uh, but that must come up fairly infrequently i'm guessing but I mean, as you say, a far more a far more rewarding experience to have that sort of collaboration with the with the original author. Um, yeah, that, that kind of collaboration is is very unusual. Um, I, I haven't translated much verse either, so it, that that was unusual for me too. Um, I think the the most important thing is to have the author's complete trust. You know, she she wanted me to translate the book. She's she's bilingual. She's she's written books in English. She could have done it herself, um, but decided, <laughs> decided that she wasn't able to do that or didn't have the the desire to do that um but yeah we we went there's a lot of back and forth there where i was kind of adding lines and you know because it just 
it was more about the feel of the book than it was about the actual what happened necessarily. It was is is based on mm. um, um I can't remember the name of the book now. <laughs> it's based on an old poem. Um so it it was it was like there was an original source text anyway, and it it was very free in the way it interpreted that and and my translation of, of her version was also very free in the way it interpreted that. Well, I can't thank you both enough. Uh, it was a really lovely to have the time to chat to you. Walter, your passion for bringing uh, other countries' work to an English audience is much, much appreciated. Um, and Sam, your honesty and clarity about that process of translation was really, really fascinating. Uh, so thank you both for your time. Please stay safe uh, during this very strange time of lockdown. Um, but we, as I say, we do have these wonderful books that allow us to travel to places and times that we can't get to right now. So thank you both for that. Thank you for having me. Thank you.